a vacuum cleaner. Oh, what did I ever do to deserve all this? I never beat my mother. That's just because she could run faster than you. Now listen to me, Tim Willows. Just because I was a showgirl before you married me is no reason to think that I haven't developed some finer sensibilities of my own. <sighs> and of all the unpleasant objects to stare at, the last thing at night and the first thing in the morning. Who, me? No, not you. As if that isn't bad enough. But I have to have that ridiculous relic leering at me and right in my own bedroom. Now, wait a minute. He isn't a ridiculous relic, and you know it. Remember when Uncle Remus sent him to us from India? He said he had a strange power that could grant us any wish we both agreed upon. Well, that's safe enough, I must admit. As long as I'm under the same roof with you, Tim Willows, I don't think we'll ever agree on anything. How can we, as long as you've got all the best of the bargain? Oh, so I have the best of it, eh? Well, I'd like to be in your shoes for a while. You can fill them, all right. You didn't say that before we were married. I didn't get a good look until it was too late. Oh, be quiet. You be quiet. isn't a bad idea. What? Changing places. I wouldn't mind getting up in the morning and leaving this apartment. Oh, wouldn't I love to lie right here in bed until noon. No more household problems. Planning meals and hiring servants. Nothing to do but play bridge all day. But I could even fix that area. I could try my hand at business. Feminine angle might be good in advertising. Cozy little luncheons on the terrace. I think the whole idea is swell. So do I. Welcome to episode 69 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. In 1941, Carol Landis wrote an article under the title, Glamour Girls Are Suckers, for Photoplay Magazine. A standout among the usual run-of-the-mill copy from stars, Carol in this article is forthcoming about her recent heartbreak after the end of an affair with a man whom she calls Mr. X, but who is most certainly Francho Tone. Not only is she honest about the reasons why they broke up, she does something far more interesting when she springboards into telling readers about her life story. She says, You always hear a lot of talk from about all the people, usually men, who discover glamour girls. Well, let me tell you this, Carol Landis discovered herself. She goes on to declare, I trained me in the way I wanted to go, and with the exceptions of one topaz bracelet and one diamond wristwatch, I covered me with such diamonds, minks, and other luxuries as I possess. Carol Landis made her own way in the world. She pays for what she wants. How often do we see in in the press a woman claim her own origin story? What she neglects to tell the reader is that she's a stealth screwball queen wasted in the glamour puss role she was given. She could have been the successor to Carol Lombard, her namesake, the name she chose once she ditched Francis. Carol knew how to milk a gag. In Moon Over Miami from 1941, the Eye Candy Fox musical, she stars with Betty Grable, Don Amici, and Bob Cummings. 
There's a great version of the old eyeglasses gag. The glasses routine may have been around forever, but in this picture, the humor is skewered toward women in the audience. Carol Landis has this bit of business with spectacles that shows up men for dopes. Carol Landis plays Betty Grable's sister. The ladies have to camp to Miami with her aunt, played by Charlotte Greenwood, with the goal of bagging a millionaire so that all three of them can permanently escape punching a clock in a drive through restaurant. In the ruse to get a man with deep pockets, they present Betty as an heiress, Carol as her secretary, and their, their aunt as a maid. On their first night in a Miami resort, Robert Cummings invites Betty Grable to the party he's hosting. When he calls at their bungalow, Betty reminds Carol to don her glasses as a disguise. Carol wears a smart white blouse with balloon sleeves, a smartly tailored brown suit, chocolate brown Oxfords, and a pair of dark frame glasses. Oh, and she carries a book in her hand to complete the anti-glamour style she's supposed to have. The disguise, such as it is, fails to reach the desired effect. Carol looks like a sophisticated woman of intrigue, as though she has authored books without breaking a sweat, traveled the world solo, lectured to expert audiences. If you combine the intellectual acumen she projects with that clear-eyed gaze, the cosmopolitan wardrobe lends even more confidence. Carol underplays the scene with poise. She's deciding if Robert Cummings needs the glasses, or is he smart enough to see behind or see over the glasses she wears. Carol remains resolute. She doesn't remove her glasses and shake out her hair like Dorothy Malone did later for Bogart in The Big Sleep to show him what his eyes missed the first time. Carol keeps her own counsel for his moment of folly. Anytime a woman in the audience can say, what an idiot of a man on screen, a figurative sassmouth dame gets her sables. She doesn't need wings. Before Daryl Zanuck set Carol Landis on the road to play second fiddle to women like Betty Grable, Rita Hayworth, or Sonia Henney, she proved that she was a whiz at comedy, especially in Turnabout from 1940. Turnabout was adapted from the novel published in 1931 by Thorne Smith. Smith wrote wildly popular books that usually featured a husband and wife having adventures and many, many cocktails. His other bestsellers were also adapted to the screen, Topper, Topper Returns, and The Passionate Witch, which became I Married a Witch. Smith worked for years in advertising. He spoofs the madman industry and turnabout from copywriters who sneak an eye-opener at the water cooler in the morning to the boss who drones on and on in long meetings about the need for brevity. There's also a cheeky ad campaign for a union suit in the book, which is marketed as a garment designed to conceal a host of physical imperfections. Rather than promise glamour, as was the stock and trade of the advertising industry, Smith's character adopts blunt candor to sell a few units. Smith's book has a great opening scene of marital discord, which stems from the everyday quotidian things that can annoy you about a husband. 
For Sally, it's watching her husband slowly remove his socks. He takes forever to do it. And when his feet are finally free and exposed, he wiggles his toes and cracks, despises toes in general, and her husband's in particular. After five years of marriage, the thrill is gone, and so is the romance. They never go anywhere or do anything. When her husband Tim returns from his job in the advertising agency, he wants to sit around the house and read. Tim has his own complaints about Sally, chief among them, that when he leaves for the office every morning, she's in bed, positively drugged with sleep. She lays about and then lunches with friends. What he wouldn't give for so much free time on his hands. Why he could write a novel at long last. Sally shoots back that she would love to be able to escape the suburban jail and go into the city every day to meet with people and have interesting projects to work on. In the Willows household, the grass is always greener on the other side of the twin beds. In the novel, to fill the void of excitement, 28-year-old raven-haired Sally fantasizes about being a kept woman with a stable of men who are only too happy to entertain her and buy her things. Sally has one thing to look forward to, a suburban custom known as necking cocktail parties. They appear to be Prohibition-era version of key parties. But pre-birth control era, it's not exactly true wife swapping that happens. It's more along the lines of kissing and petting with men you are not married to while throwing back bathtub gin cocktails. Best practice, the author notes, is for husbands and wives to attend these necking parties separately. Otherwise, sore feelings and jealous rows tend to surface. Turnabout was part of a radical shift in the Hal Roach studio, which from its inception during the silent era had produced a steady roster of two real comedies. The shorts were distributed through a lucrative deal with MGM, exhibited in their chain of low theaters. Roach made highly profitable comedies that ran around 15 or 20 minutes each. Well known for Laurel and Hardy, and then Our Gang, the studio was also invested in developing teams of women comedians. From the late silent era, Roach released a pair of tights in 1929, which referred to cheap dates rather than women's hosiery. The 20-minute short stars Anita Garvin and Marion Byron. Over the years, Roach Studio teamed Zazu Pitts and Thelma Todd. After that, Thelma Todd and Patsy Kelly. And after Thelma's tragic death, the studio went with Patsy Kelly and Lida Roberti. By the mid-1930s, though, taste had changed and the demand for comedy shorts diminished. Profits dropped. Changing gears, Hal Roach decided the studio should produce A pictures, that it was the only way to compete with the majors. He signed a distribution deal with United Artists Artists to replace the one he had with Metro. Roach had three pillars for making a quality A picture. A vital story a director attuned to the story, and actors who fit the part rather than actors who are chosen for their popularity at the box office. Roach had originally scheduled six A features for 1940, but he had to scale them back to three due to budget and financing problems. 
Carol starred in two of them, One Million B.C. and Turnabout. During production for Turnabout, the studio had so much trouble from Joseph Breen, head of the production code administration, that it nearly closed for good. Breen had two objections to the script, a gay character and the ending. The production code condemned gay characters as pansies or, in their terms, sex perversion, which included the hosiery salesman Franklin Pangboard plays Mr. Pingboom. Roach trims some of the lines where Pingboom is referred to as a swisher and a few other overt references to gay sexuality, and then sent the script back to Breen for approval. But when the final script reached Breen, he had stronger reservations about the ending. In Breen's letter, he denounced the film for saying that the sex organs of the husband and wife remained mixed up at the ending and that the husband was pregnant with child. Breen judged it deeply offensive to audiences. Roach promised to make the changes, and in return, Breen issued a production code certificate for Turnabout. The next step was it went to the Catholic Legion of Decency for a preview, but the Legion rated it with a C, C for condemned, for being morally objectionable in its entirety. At this point, Breen was forced to choose sides. He backed Hal Roach. In response to the C rating, Roach pleaded that he could not afford to reshoot the ending to call everybody back into production, as the Legion had asked. Not only would it ruin the picture, the result would mean a complete loss for the studio. Roach argued that the Legion put undue burden on one small independent studio on the verge of bankruptcy. The decision would close Roach Studio and only benefit the unfair monopoly that the larger studios had. A solution came from a man in the New York office of Roach Studio. He made a deal with the Legion of Decency that they would edit the picture and test it with a preview audience. If it was well received by the audience, they would put the edited version into wide release. The Legion accepted the offer and published a B rating for partially objectionable material in Turnabout. What happened next is unprecedented in the history of the production code era of Hollywood. Roach took his certificate and his B rating to United Artists without making the changes the Legion wanted. In a burst of ingenuity, Roach discovered a true workaround. Say whatever it takes to get approval and then do it the way you want anyway. Upon release, Turnabout was not subject to boycott or outcry when the picture hit theaters. Minimal changes were requested by some censors in some states and cities like Chicago. Turnabout comes in at a trim 83 minutes and not one of them is wasted. Carol Landis plays Sally, a former showgirl now married to Tim Willows, played by John Hubbard. Tim is an ad executive, just like in the novel, with his name on the door this time, though, in Willows, Manning, and Claire Agency. He exercises obsessively. 
In one scene, Joyce Compton and Mary Astor snigger over his nickname, The Boy Athlete. Carol plays a dead lazy wife who has three people on staff to run her swanky penthouse. She lays around in bed or a bubble bath until it's time to meet the girls and spend the husband's money. I love to see a lazy woman on screen as much as those charged with ambition. She doesn't really have anything to complain about, so she harps on getting rid of Tim's Great Dane, a cutie pie named Dopey. Carol later referred to her role in Turnabout as something special. Turnabout was the only time where she said she had, quote, more than an even chance to demonstrate ability rather than matter. From the opening scene, Turnabout downplays Carol's figure and emphasizes her screwball polish. In her first scene, Carol Sally is rudely awakened by her husband's morning exercises, huffing and puffing in the bed next to hers. She's under the covers up to her neck. Sally and Tim bicker with as much vigor as his daily exercise routine. They decide that the other has it so much better. Tim would love to sleep in, have long lunches on the terrace, and take Dopey to the park. Sally would love to try her hand at business. She could use the woman's angle, make decisions, and meet people in the city. They dream about trading places. The following morning, Sally and Tim discover that Mr. Ram, a statue of a man wearing a turban, overheard and granted their wishes. Husband and wife have switched bodies, but to highlight the change, they have kept their old voices. Roach uses a trick dubbing that's fairly impressive for the time, so that a booming baritone comes out of Carol's mouth and lilting dulcet tones from John Hubbard's. Tim minces around with his arms pulled in close, swishing his hips. John Hubbard has a wonderful scene with Franklin Pangborn. The office staff interrupt their meeting to find Hubbard in Carol's high voice talking about the importance of a snug fit of hosiery while his hand is stuck inside a stocking. Hubbard and Pangborn sit so close behind the executive desk that their heads are nearly touching. Pangborn is uh, is in a full-on swoon at the tall, square-shouldered executive who purrs about hosiery. He takes his leave by saying, Au revoir, Timsey. The comedic value that Carol Landis squeezes from suddenly being liberated of a sexualized body is a joy to behold. The picture showcases Carol's ability to clown and strut and move without paying deference to the rules about feminine decorum. Carol revels at the chance to ditch the baggage that comes with being a hot blonde. In Tim's striped pajamas, her limbs lengthen. She occupies more space. She takes up room. In multiple scenes, she rests her forearms on her thighs, knees spread far apart, her spine hunched over. She hangs her head in her fists, a dead ringer for Rodin's thinker, while wearing a glamorous gown from Royer. Carol at one point stamps her foot into into a tiny strap sandal in a way that reminds viewers that high heels are foreign territory. 
In the novel, when Tim occupies his wife's body, he walks around with his breasts hanging out and a big fat cigar screwed in his mouth. Obviously, Breen would not have allowed that, but the way Carol Landis moves her body brings the rules about gendered bodies home. What appears natural is the result of a lifetime of training. In the studio system, one of the first lessons women learned was how to walk, sit, and move on camera. Women practiced and practiced to be graceful and feminine above everything. Carol looks so relieved to jettison the rules about what her body should do or how it should move. As Tim, Carol abandons modesty rituals. She performs leg lifts and nip-ups, tells the poor maid to scram, and scandalizes the butler by jumping in the shower and ordering him to stay in the bathroom while she spoke to him. Carol's best scene, and my favorite in the picture, occurs when, after her shower, she dons a baggy sweatshirt and shorts to tackle a long overdue chore and fix the radio aerial on the penthouse terrace. She saunters across the lavish rooftop terrace with a massive coil of wire slung over her narrow shoulder and swinging a hammer with the other arm. She whistles a tune to match her jaunty step. At one point, Carol swings that hammer at a manicured shrub that lines the balcony. It's one of those little throwaway bits of business that captures the way that men inhabit space. A man swings at an unassuming little bit of shrubbery when he walks by. Women are supposed to glide by quietly without rustling a leaf. When she's supposed to be a man, Carol charges forward, takes up space, makes noise, and shakes up the otherwise placid setting. If a man of the house takes time out to do something, it's an event that requires spectators. As the man of the house, Carol hooks her foot into the rope at the flagpole and directs the household staff to hoist her to the top. At the bottom of the flagpole, Marjorie Maine, the cook, Donald Meek, the butler, and Yolanda Donlin, the personal maid, tug on the rope until Carol makes it to the top of the flagpole. She fiddles with the equipment just in time for the doorbell to chime, which calls Donald Meeks away. He returns with luncheon guests Joyce Compton and Mary Astor. Mary Astor's ensemble is faithful to the roots of screwball comedy, where women flaunt their wealth in an outrageous style. She's decked out in a gold turban, a bib necklace, a jeweled belt, and a gold bandolier for lunch. She is the epitome of society dames who lunch. Joyce Compton is more conservative in a smart suit, but the ladies are there to offset the incongruous oddball who kicks around in pleated wool trousers under her hostess gown. Sally's eccentricities are wearing thin on the fashionable ladies. The supporting cast could not be faulted. Give me Marjorie Maine making wisecracks, Mary Astor dressed to the teeth, telling women how to improve their petty larceny with household accounts, and Varie Teasdale as a harried head, head secretary, and I'm a captive audience. Carol Landis married in 1934 when she was only 15 years old. Itching to leave school and break with her family, she lied about her age to wed this guy, Irving Wheeler.
her parents had it annulled on the grounds of her age. The following year, she married Wheeler for a second time. But Carol was soon disillusioned with marriage, and they lived together for less than one month. Impatient for her life to begin, Carol scrimped and saved the bus fare to San Francisco. She started out dancing in a hula costume in nightclubs, then worked her way up to a torch singer gig. She learned the entertainment business as she saved again for her move to Hollywood, where she would pursue the dream she had since she was seven years old to be an actress. In 1937, she made it to Hollywood. One of her rooming house neighbors was a man on contract as a dancer in Warner Brothers. He put in a word for her at the studio. Carol was cast as a showgirl in a Busby Berkeley production. It wasn't long before Carol was pursued by Busby Berkeley. They dated, and the studio publicity at one point announced their engagement. Berkeley had a reputation for using a creative form of the casting couch to get new starlets to sleep with him. He wasn't the only one to use the trick. He would offer new girls a special audition where he promised women close-ups or favored them with a few lines of dialogue to help boost their prospects in the studio. It was a fast track to advance their career that many women fell for. Later, after they had sex, the close-ups or scenes were edited out and left on the cutting room floor. Carol Landis signed with Hal Roach Studio in 1939 for her first starring role in 1 Million B.C. She was chosen from a casting call of hundreds by D.W. Griffith, the once famous silent director, now down on his luck. Griffith was hired by Hal Roach to serve in a wide capacity at the studio, but his first job was to find a girl who was going to be the lead in his caveman story. Griffith's audition method asked women to remove their shoes and run across a stretch of the back lot as fast as they could. In Griffith's view, acting ability was not of primary importance. The leading lady had to look good while she ran. Reports might have focused on the graceful gait of the women, but it seems a polite way of saying that they wanted the right amount of jiggle. Griffith chose Carol because he thought she ran like a deer, but I'm guessing it was for other reasons. At the end of 1940, Carol signed with 20th Century Fox, where she spent most of her time playing second um, fiddle to Betty Grable, Rita Hayworth, and Sonia Henney. When she had lead billing at Fox, it was in B Pictures with Cesar Romero or other second-string contract players. I was happy to see that Carol's biographer, Eric Gans, disputes Milton Sperling's story about Carol Landis. Sperling was a producer and Zanuck's assistant. He claimed, and this is quoted often, that Carol Landis was the studio hooker and that she was the one most often called for Zanuck's afternoon sex break. Zanuck was known for shutting his office every day at four o'clock to have sex with a woman under contract. Gans argues that Milton Sperling was friends with Lily Palmer, Rex Harrison's wife, and was not exactly an impartial observer to the events. And as Zanuck's notorious death-chasing reputation proves, no woman was safe from his sexual demands. Remember I told you in the last episode that 
uh, Lynn Barry took bodyguards with her when she went to Zanuck's office and how much she pitied the women who worked there. For Carol, the personal highlight during her contract with Fox was probably the four months in 1943 where she toured to entertain the troops. She was part of the only all-female lineup of performers, along with Kay Francis, who was Carol's idol when she was a girl, as well as Martha Ray and Broadway star Mitzi Mayfair. The women entertained servicemen close to the front line and endured dire conditions. Carol wrote about the tour in a book called Four Jills and a Jeep, which was well-received and later used for a film. In Glamour Girls Are Suckers, the photoplay article that I quoted at the beginning of this episode, Carol Landis discusses her recent devastating breakup with an actor whom she calls Mr. X. Mr. X had to be Franco Tone. They dated for months. Then all of a sudden, he gave her the cold shoulder after being inseparable for months, just as she describes in the article. Mr. X would bow out of dinner plans, giving excuses about how he had to take a conference. Carol notes it was, quote, the same old homespun line without so much as a gold tassel at the end of it, and I let him hang me with it. The foreshadowing in Carol's metaphor is more than a little unsettling. Other men she knew at the time delivered the truth about what Franchot was doing behind her back by pieces, about how they had seen X dancing with so-and-so, how it seemed like it was something serious. Carol would conceal her surprise and hurt and ask why they were telling her because she was simply good friends with X. Francho didn't have the decency to break it off. He just offered lies and excuses about why he couldn't see her. Carol was hurt and humiliated, but in this article, she's clear-eyed about the vicious cycle for women in Hollywood. Carol tells the reader, on the surface, women who were glamorous, envied, and popular were used by men. None of it was real. It wasn't about love, sex, or romance. The Hollywood dating scene was just another business transaction. It was about networking, publicity, and making connections for men to advance their own careers in Hollywood. Carol recognized this pattern, but she couldn't seem to break it because she didn't want to play the part of the demanding bitchy star. Carol wrote, They want to go out with us, not because they are fascinated with us, let alone in love, but so they will get their names in the papers the next morning. It's like a man buying expensive champagne, not because he really likes the wine, but because the label is impressive. Carol illustrates her point by describing a man who rang to ask her out, saying they shared a mutual friend back east who thought they would be good together. So Carol agreed to go out, but the man wasn't interested in dancing. Another man walked by and asked Carol to dance, and she did. When she returned to the table, her date was so annoyed and told her to remember that he had invited her out. How else would anyone know if they were together if she danced with another man? Carol explains why women repeat the cycle with unworthy men. I think we fall for it because I think we mean 
we so much want to believe that we are not just the make-believe to men, not just mannequins, not just the equivalents of shiny chromium-trimmed cars, sleek yachts, chauvet ties, or other expensive accessories with which men advertise their importance to the world. Carol's analysis of the sexual arena in Hollywood is bleak and unlike anything I've read in a magazine from 1941. Carol tells us women are used and discarded like objects. Most movie magazines were devoted to fantasy fulfillment and fairy tales about Hollywood, but Carol Landis injects brutal honesty. When you consider the number of terrible experiences Carol Landis had with men who wanted to use her for sex, money, or their own career advancement, it seems a logical conclusion that that is what pushed her to swallow all those sleeping pills. She was abandoned by her first husband, who turned up only later to cash in when it suited. Hal Roach, despite her talent, tried to publicize Carol as the ping girl, until she had to take out ads in the trade papers saying she rejected the label and would not participate in any way with the Ping Girl campaign. Influential men in Hollywood, such as Busby Berkeley, Daryl Zanuck, Franco Tone, and Rex Harrison, treated her poorly. I find it hard to believe the generally accepted reason that Carol ended her life because she feared growing old. Carol showed no signs of age, She hadn't suffered any physical changes that would have proven the march of time. She was only 29 years old, for God's sake. By 1948, the year Carol took her life, many stars were rewriting the rules about glamour and age. The most celebrated performances in 1948 were from women over 30 and even 40. Jane Wyman won Best Actress for Johnny Belinda when she was 31. Best Supporting Actress went to 38-year-old Claire Trevor. Olivia de Havilland was 32 when The Snake Pit premiered. Oscar-nominated for Joan of Arc, Ingrid Bergman was 33. Loretta Young, whom Carol so admired, was 35 and had plenty of work in A Pictures. Barbara Stanwyck was 41 and maintained her career as a leading lady in romantic comedies like B.F.'s Daughter from 1948. Joan Crawford didn't make any pictures in 1948, but she was gearing up for a period of critical and commercial success for films such as Flamingo Road, The Damned Don't Cry, Sudden Fear, and she was in her mid-40s. It seems more likely to me that the despair that led to Carol's overdose came from years of being treated like dirt by men. Originally, I had planned to read a chapter from Lily Palmer's autobiography to close the episode because it gives you that sense of what Carol's death and had like the impact in Hollywood. But then I decided against it because Palmer shouldn't have the last word on Carol. I mention it because I was so shocked by Palmer's callous tone. She describes Carol as her father, a railroad switchman, had abandoned the family when she was three, to give us a bit of class bias to show us that Carol was no good. Who cares what her father did? It in no way explains who Carol Landis was. Palmer also shrinks the timeline of her husband's affair to Carol, 
to a two-week window when in reality it went on for months from London to Los Angeles. In the midst of the media frenzy that followed, Palmer takes a moment to anthropomorphize a pair of horses they owned. She constructs a story in her mind about how in love the horses were when she sees them nuzzling. She can create this tender moment of sympathy for two horses, but not for Carol Landis's tragic death. Palmer has a complete empathy deficit. She wrote at one point, next day permission was finally given to bury the girl. The girl. She doesn't even use her name. Had it been written in 1948, I would have said it was a simple defense mechanism. But Palmer wrote her book in 1975. She had plenty of time to reflect, learn, and develop some empathy. Only she didn't. It's poor Rex, poor me. Palmer's memoir is a rude reminder that women have internalized larger narratives about power. The lurid tabloid stories and media histories, which situate Carol's life and death in terms of slut-shaming and victim-blaming, are repeated lock, stock, and barrel in Palmer's book. I think we should always try and question the official version of events when we talk about Hollywood history. We should remember Carol Landis as a gifted actress and comedian who showed promise as a writer. She was a woman who made her own way in a highly competitive industry and, in her own words, discovered herself. The following articles and books helped me to write the episode. Glamour Girls Are Suckers by Carol Landis, the December 1941 edition of Photoplay magazine. Golden Age Blue Pencils, the Hal Roach Studios and Three Case Studies of Censorship During Hollywood Studio Era, published by Richard Ward in the Journal of Media History in 2002. Carol Landis, A Most Beautiful Girl by Eric Gans. Buzz, The Life and Art of Busby Berkeley by Jeffrey Spivak. A History of the Hal Roach Studios by Richard Ward. Thanks so much for listening. If you are enjoying the podcast, why not tell a friend or leave a nice review on iTunes? Join me next time for episode 70 when I talk about Dolores Del Rio in In Caliente from 1935. Thanks very much.